Everyone have a good afternoon? Anyone get a nap in this afternoon? Okay, a few of you, good. You can't sleep in the service, so they say the speaker's partly responsible, uh, so I'll try to do my best to keep you awake, and let's just look to the Lord uh, to teach us uh, from His Word, and I'll be honest with you, uh, I'm going to preach, I feel definitely direction from the Lord uh, to preach a message uh, differently than the one I was planning on. Uh, so we'll look to the Lord for this, uh, but there's a couple passages I want to draw our attention to just as we think about the uh, uh, message even this morning. Uh, a couple messages, obviously the Sunday school, uh, we talked about just the need for courage, uh, facing uh, obstacles, the need to take the next step in our spiritual journey. And I trust that's your heartbeat I certainly sense that heartbeat in many of you here this, uh, just in the brief time uh, that I've been with you, uh, but there's a sense where all of us need to just continually be open before the Lord, asking Him, Lord, what's the next step that you have for me uh, to take in my spiritual journey? And then we looked in the morning service on courage to deal with sin, and just being open and honest before God, allowing Him to point out areas in our lives that need a change. And today I want to continue that theme. We know that God's grace is sufficient to cover sin. And that's what I want to focus on. I want to start in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And then we'll uh, look at a couple other passages here tonight. Hebrews chapter 12. The Lord has used this passage in my own personal life. Uh, just thinking about the Christian life and the obstacles that we face, the trials that we face, the, the speed bumps along the road. You know, the Christian life is compared to different things in the Bible. Different pictures are given. Uh, one is the Christian life is compared to a battlefield. We're called to be soldiers. And Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, told uh, Timothy, his son in the faith, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He went on to say, uh, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews chapter 12 carries the theme of endurance, but it uses a different picture, not a picture of a soldier, uh, but the Christian life, it uses a picture of the Christian life being a race, a runner running a race. And I'll just read the first uh, three verses here. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 1 says this, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And I believe that's talking about the heroes of faith uh, mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, they've gone before. They've paved the way. But now we have a responsibility, a responsibility of faith. What is it? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That word patience is the word endurance. Um, it's sticking with it, not giving up, not being, can I say this, turned out of the way. Uh, Brother Stephen, I believe, has a, a slide. I just want to show you on the screen. We can think of the Christian life as a race of faith. We're not competing against each other, but rather the idea of a race, one, it requires endurance, and the other is the race implies that there's a finish line, does it not? So if you and I were to line up outside and participate in a race, okay, anyone up for that? 
a race implies that there's a boundary somewhere that you're headed toward, a finish line. And so it's significant to me that the Christian life is likened to a race because I believe there's a finish line that we're all to be looking forward to. And I believe that finish line, obviously, we come to when we breathe our last breath. But then there's a most important appointment that all of us have, you and I as believers, and that's the appointment at the judgment seat of Christ. You and I will stand before Christ one day. And that's a sobering reality. We're not going to be judged against the person next to us. The fiery eyes of God is going to pierce through the innermost being of our soul. And by the way, the judgment seat, I don't believe, it's, it's not a question of whether we're saved or not. We're, we're all saved. Uh, when Whoever stands before the judgment seat is saved. They're a child of God. But 1 Corinthians 3 talks about our works, the things that we do in this life. Some of those works, how we live our life. So the choices we make, whether we please God, whether we don't, where we, whether we guard our eyes from impurity or not. These choices, there will either be wood, hay, and stubble, things done in our flesh that will just burn up, or there will be gold, silver, and precious stones. And God often uses the difficulties, the trials in our life to make gold. And even in this brief, short lifespan that we have, be it 70, 80 years, or less, or more, whatever the Lord has, Sometimes God uses those difficult things to actually prepare us for a greater reward in eternity. So we may not understand, Lord, why are you allowing all of these obstacles, all of these trials in my life? We may not see, even understand God's purposes in this life. But I believe there are rich, eternal rewards, in addition to heaven, that God is wanting to lavish on his children. Brother Stephen, if you don't mind putting the second slide up, um, I don't know if there's a way to adjust it or not. If not, I can just walk through it. Okay. While Brother Stephen is looking at that, I want to just think in your mind, what are the obstacles in my life right now? What are the circumstances? What are the difficulties? What are the things that Satan is trying to use to get me to give up? in the race. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 13, it says this, it's possible to be turned out of the way. Let's just read the passage, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 13. It says this, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. So the context is we need to be running with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus. He's our provision. He's our enabler. Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, for consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. What was it, I want to ask a question to all of us here tonight, 
What was it that kept Jesus fixed and focused on the mission that he came for? Why did Jesus come? To die on the cross for our sins, did he not? And so Jesus comes and he suffers mockery, suffers opposition from sinners. And it says Jesus endured the cross. He endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. Why? Because he set his eyes on the joy that was set before him. I think that's picturesque for us as believers today. In this little diagram here, it simply, uh, I've entitled it the race of faith. The moment you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, we call it the point of salvation, you and I are called to run a race. There will be obstacles. Those obstacles look like a lot of different things. Temptations, uh, hurts, offenses of others, chastening. Hebrews 12 really develops that God, when we sin, God in His love actually draws us back. And sometimes He uses the difficulties, the circumstances of life as chastening. That can be an obstacle. And then like Job and Joseph and others, they just experienced trials. It wasn't because of some specific sin in their life, but it was an obstacle. And God wants you and I, as we run this race, to overcome those obstacles. And of course, that's not possible by our own strength talked about God's grace, the sufficiency of God's grace, right? It, it superabounds. Whatever the obstacle is, God's grace is more abundant. And so it's Christ's strength that enables us to overcome those obstacles. So that I believe when we get to the end of our life, we're able to stand before the Lord. As 1 John 2.28 says, Now little children, abide in me. Stay connected with Jesus. His life, His divine enablement, that when He shall appear, we will not be ashamed at His coming. God wants us to be able to receive that divine commendation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And He does have abundant rewards, but it's, can I say, conditioned on the kind of account we'll give at the judgment seat. And the verdict at the judgment seat will be determined by, did we overcome the obstacles in our life by God's grace, by His divine enablement, or were we turned out of the way? Now the fact is, many of us, I have been there myself, in fact all of us could I say, at some point in our life have been turned out of the way. We've given in to sin. We've given in to our flesh. We've given in to anger, resentment, bitterness. And in that moment, we've been turned out of the way. And my focus tonight is how do we come back home? The way back home. I've just simply titled the message tonight is the way back home. The way of fellowship where God intends you and I to be. The place God intends for us to be, you and I tonight, is in a place of abiding fellowship. And I love John 15 where Jesus is pictured as divine. And we as branches are connected with Him. So not only are we able to overcome the obstacles in our life, but we're actually able to overflow in fruit and ministry to other people. That's God's desire for us.
Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life. But he didn't stop there. He says, I'm come that they might have life more abundantly. The life that Jesus Christ intends for you and I is a life of joy, a life of peace, a life that's settled and secure. That's the place of fellowship that God wants us to be in. So if you look at your life tonight, you say, wow, that, that's not characterizing my life right now. Perhaps you've been turned out of the way, been discouraged, defeated. So the focus of our message tonight is how do we get back on track? How do we get back on the road that God wants us to be? The way back home. And there's simply five truths for finding our way back home. When we get into fellowship with Jesus, things happen. He brings beauty out of ashes. He brings oil of joy for mourning. He brings garments of praise for heaviness. He's the restorer of my soul. When God puts his finger on things in our life in areas of sin, disobedience, he puts his finger on, our li- on those areas in our life, how do we get right with God? How do we come back into fellowship with God? Five truths for finding our way back home. You know the verse, 1 John 1, 9, it's a powerful text. It says this, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you grateful for that promise? That's powerful. So when we get off track, the Bible says if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You realize there's seven men the Bible records in Scripture that said these words, I have sinned. But there was only one of those men that was restored back into fellowship. Who are these seven men? Well, you know uh, these stories, no doubt. One was Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh, the proud A haughty Pharaoh, Moses, comes before him and says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, Who's the Lord that I should obey him? Proud, haughty Pharaoh. And yet after he saw plague after plague after plague, a couple times Pharaoh says, I have sinned. But where do we find Pharaoh end up? He's drowned at the bottom of the Red Sea. How about Balaam? Remember Balaam? He's an interesting character back in the book of Numbers. Um, he's supposed to, the king of Moab wanted to hire him to uh, curse Israel. And at first he said, no, I'm not going to go. And then he says, well, I will go. And so he goes. And, but then he doesn't curse Israel. He blesses Israel. And um, Balaam says, I have sinned. Remember, the angel is blocking his way. And at that moment, Balaam says, I have sinned. Well, Balaam went on to actually seduce Israel. King Saul was another man. He said, I have sinned. King Saul, remember, he, um, God had given him a specific task to do. Samuel said, uh, I want you to go. God wants you to wipe out the Amalekites. And Saul did most of it. He said, I've obeyed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel says, well, what does the, the bleeding of the sheep in my ears, what is that? And Saul says, I have sinned. 
You know Saul's next words? But honor me now in front of the people. He said, I have sinned, but it wasn't true confession. Because he was still concerned about how he looked in front of other people. Shimei, remember the man who cursed David? Well, it looked like he was on top of when David was running out of town and Shimei felt freedom to just curse David. But then David came back. And then while Shimei's on his face, I have sinned. And of course, we know the end of the story he ended up uh, losing his life. And then there was Judas Iscariot. He said, after he had betrayed Jesus, he realized Jesus was actually betrayed. He was actually going to be crucified. The trial wasn't just fake. He was actually going to die. And Judas realizes the plight. He comes back in and says, I have sinned. He throws the money down at the temple. Instead of being restored back to fellowship, he goes and hangs himself. So when God puts his finger on an area of sin in our life, disobedience to his spirit, how do we come back home? What's the confession that actually restores fellowship? Confession is saying, I have sinned, but there's something more to it. And we'll look at that here this, uh, tonight. Five truths that we l- want to look at, and it's from the life of the seventh man who said, I have sinned. You're already thinking of it. David. Remember David? So David had committed some heinous crimes, had he not? I mean, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had murdered Uriah the Hittite. And David says, when he's confronted by Nathan the prophet, David says, I have sinned. David is restored back to fellowship. We have the testimony of that in Psalm 51. Let's go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, when God puts his finger on an area in our life, His conviction, His Holy Spirit convicts us. Psalm 51 is an appropriate prayer to pray. There's five simple truths I want to just glean uh, from this text. Truth number one, God's mercy is our only hope for restoration. God's mercy is our only hope for restoration. Notice in verse 1, Psalm 51, Have mercy. Upon me, O God. I don't deserve it, but Lord, I need it. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. David recognized, I need God's mercy. I am hopeless. I am lost without God's mercy. And when God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit, convicts us, truth number one with confession, recognize, I'm lost without God's mercy. God, yes, I've sinned. I need your mercy. David recognized he needed God's mercy. I mentioned this this morning, but the story in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son, of course, when he's there in his father's house and he goes and he doesn't want to wait until he's older and his dad passes away before he gets the inheritance. He wants the inheritance right now. And so he takes it, of course, you know the story, he wastes his father's inheritance in riotous living. 
Of course, he comes to the end of himself in a pigsty. He comes to himself and says, you know, my father's servants have it better than I do. And we find him making the decision to make the long walk home, to have the courage to come back home. As he's taking that walk back home, no doubt he's rehearsing in his mind what he's going to say, trying to perhaps think through, what is my dad going to, how is he going to respond? And as he's thinking through this, he doesn't even get to the house. He's almost tackled by his father, who came and saw him looking, saw him afar off and just grabs, hugs his neck, runs and welcomes his wayward son home. It's a picture of God's mercy. He doesn't want us to be estranged from him. I'm reminded of the story of in Genesis, just of the perfect environment that Adam and Eve were in. And you realize God wanted to have fellowship with Adam. God wanted fellowship. The God of the universe, the God who is the creator, actually wanted fellowship with Adam. And here Adam is, once he sins, it wasn't Adam going back to God. It was God saying, Adam, where are you? God wants to have fellowship with you. Can I say this? God wants to have fellowship with you and I more than we want fellowship with Him. That's an awesome thought. It shows God's mercy. Truth one, God's mercy is our only hope for restoration. Truth number two, restoration begins with honesty about our sin. Notice in verse number three, for I acknowledge my transgressions my transgressions, excuse me, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Verse 3, David, he acknowledges his sin. He says, my sin is ever before me. He is keenly Aware of sin. Verse 4, he recognizes, My sin isn't so much against Bathsheba. It's not so much against Uriah. My sin is against God. Because God's the lawgiver. When you sin, do you recognize it's disobedience to God? Sometimes I think you and I, and I include myself in it, we can think about, you know, we, we give in to sin and we think, wow, what am I, what am I doing? Why have I get given in? We feel guilty. We feel the pressure. The, we feel dirty. We feel like trash. And yet at that moment, we can be more interested in just getting the load of sin off, the load of guilt off, than actually coming back in fellowship with God. You know what I'm talking about? When you sin, is your primary concern coming back in fellowship with God, or is it just to have a better life? 
Sometimes we can be more concerned about the consequences of our sin than the fact that our relationship, our fellowship with God has been broken. Well, truth number three, truth number three, cleansing is only possible through the blood of Jesus. Cleansing, only possible through the blood of Jesus. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop is just a a shrub. It's kind of a small shrub with stiff and hairy uh, leaves and branches. Uh, You may remember back with the the Passover, that's what uh, they used, hyssop, uh, to really strike, uh, dip in the blood of an animal and strike the doorpost. It's a picture of the blood of the lamb. You realize we need blood, the blood of Jesus, to cover our sin, even as believers. Jesus is continually applying blood. He only died once, and that's all that's necessary. But the fact is, you and I need that blood to continually cleanse us from the defilement of this world. Cleansing is only possible through the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's that word confess mean? Because that's the key. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. If we confess, that word confess, it just means to say the same thing that God says about our sin. Someone does something that irritates you and you have that rise in your spirit, that frustration, and maybe you're been saved long enough, you feel like you can keep it in, but you know inside there's that anger. Confession is simply saying, God, I'm siding with you. I was wrong in that expression of anger, and you're right. That's what confession is. It's just aligning with God against myself. You look at Immodesty, you have wrong thoughts, you have fear or anger, and you give in to that temptation. In that moment, the Spirit convicts you of sin. You can say, oh, excuse it and justify it and say, oh, it's no big deal. Or you can side with God. I was wrong. God, you're right. Confession. And then truth number four, confession of sin restores fellowship with God. This is verse 11 and 12. It says this, in verse 11, it says, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and but uphold me with thy free spirit. I love this expression David is saying. He says, I can't go on without your presence. Now we know God never leaves us. As a believer, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But the fact is, we can distance ourselves from God. We can go our own way and actually distance, put a wall between us and God. We can become disconnected, as it were, from the vine, from the life of Jesus. David says, I can't go on 
I can't go on without your presence. Cast me not away from your presence. I need to be right there with you. You ever seen a child in a store that likes toys, okay? They're in the toy section and there's something just glittery. And it's like, wow, I've got to have this. And they get all distracted with this toy. And wow, this is amazing. This is great. Before they came across the toy, specifically that they were interested, they were right with their mom. She was right there. And they get all engrossed looking at that toy. And they love this. Wow, this is great. I wish I could have this. And all of a sudden, they look up and mom's gone. There's mom. And in that moment, they go running to find out, I've got to find mom. It's in a sense the heart that David has. He says, I've got to be with Jesus. How many times are you and I distracted by the things of this world? The things that look glamorous, the things that we, that please our flesh. How long does it take before we recognize, God, where are you? God, it's been a while since I've heard your voice, since I felt your touch, since I've sensed your presence. God's calling us to say, God, I want to have fellowship with you. And then lastly, truth number five, and we're done. What was the key that set David apart from Pharaoh, from Balaam, from Achan, from King Saul, from Shimei, from Judas Iscariot? Truth number five, brokenness fits me for service. Brokenness fits me for service. Notice number thir- uh, verse number 13, Psalm 51, 13. And I'm sorry, I got the wrong verse. Um, let's look at verse 17. I apologize. Verse 17, Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Confession is not just lip service. Confession is not just saying with my mouth, God, I was wrong. Okay, that's part of it. But confession, true confession, that restores us to that place of intimacy, a walk with God, fellowship with God, is confession that includes brokenness. Brokenness, recognizing that, God, I have sinned against You. You're a holy God and I have broken Your law. Brokenness that recognizes my fellowship with God has been hindered. Brokenness that my sin has grieved the very heart of God. David's broken over his sin with Bathsheba. He's broken over the murder of Uriah. 
And God's pleased with the sacrifices of a broken and a contrite spirit. Isaiah 57 verse 15 talks about the Holy One of Israel who dwells with him that's of a broken and a contrite heart. God loves humility. God loves brokenness. God loves contriteness, contrition. The idea of we're broken in God's hand. If we come to God, we're nothing, but God's everything. God, I've sinned, but Lord, you're my restorer. God doesn't want us to just be good confessors, but brokenness helps us to be good forsakers as well. Psalm 28.13 says, He that covereth his sin will not prosper, but he that confesses and forsakes will have mercy. Brokenness fits me for service. We're going to close in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 21. 2 Timothy, if you would, just turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. It's a passage that I believe gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. You realize you and I are not here in 21st century America by accident. Just like Esther was called to the kingdom for such a time as this, you and I are divinely placed in this world at this time for God's unique purpose. You have a purpose that's different than mine. You have a purpose that's different than the person next to you. Each of us have a different purpose. But it's a God-ordained purpose that He's custom-made you, created you to fulfill. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 21. It's the story. It's the picture of a great house. And in this great house, there are two types of vessels. There's vessels unto honor, usefulness. And there's vessels unto dishonor, a picture of our own will and iniquity as we see in verse number 19. But verse 21, it says this, If a man therefore purge himself from these, that which is dishonorable, that which is our own flesh, our own iniquity, our own disobedience, our own sin, if any man purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, that high and holy calling sanctified, set apart unto God, and meet, fit for the Master's use, prepared unto every good work. Brokenness fits me for service. It fits you for service. Brokenness is painful. It's easier in the moment to ignore, to justify our sin rather than to walk the road of brokenness and side with God against ourselves. But that path of brokenness actually makes me a powerful weapon in the hand of the Master, where He's able to use you in a way in this world like you never thought possible. You're sanctified. You're set apart. You're surrendered to Him. You're clean And He can flow through you to minister to other people. The psalmist said in Psalm 51, Then will I teach transgressors, and sinners will be converted unto you. I hope you have a heart for souls. I certainly sense that here. 
We're burdened to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way it's possible if you and I become useful vessels in the hand of the Master. A vessel prepared unto every good work. The way back home, it's coming back into fellowship with Jesus. Truth number one, God's mercy. It's our only hope. Truth number two, restoration begins with honesty about our sin. Truth number three, cleansing is only possible through the blood of Jesus. Truth number four, confession of sin restores fellowship with God. And truth number five, brokenness fits me for service. Brokenness makes me effective in prayer. Brokenness makes me effective in ministry to others. Brokenness makes you a useful hand, a useful vessel in the hand of the master. Your work for God is only as effective as your walk with God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? The pastor will come and pianist will play. If the Lord's spoken to your heart tonight, again, I'm not going to prolong the invitation, but I just want to invite you as the pianist plays just to communicate with God. Perhaps there is a specific sin in your life. Lust, selfishness, anger, pride, bitterness. Would you confess it to God? Would you be willing to allow God to break you over the sin so that you can be fitted for His service? Pianist is going to play. I'm just going to encourage you to take time to pray. You're welcome to come to the front if you'd like. You're welcome to pray in your seat. We'll just take just a moment here.